How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. This is Dr. Peter Antevi. Today I'll be reading the cover story of the January 2020 issue of EMS World Magazine titled, When a Child Dies, The Parent's Perspective. After reading this article, I'll be interviewing EMS Captain Adrian Castro, as well as attorney Jason Turchin, and I hope you stick around for that. A six-year-old boy was playing in the street in front of his house when his father hurriedly put the car in reverse and accidentally ran him over. The scene was awful in every sense, mostly because the child suffered a head injury incompatible with life. The rescue and engine arrived and immediately focused on treating the child, yet quickly recognized the severity of the skull injury and that further care would be futile. The father watched in horror. He stood there alone, screaming and crying, but what he needed most he did not receive. The crews that arrived on scene were prepared to treat the child, but did not have the skill set to speak to the dad. At that moment, an EMS captain arrived, assessed the situation, and then did something that is not only difficult for most, but rarely done at all. He turned and walked directly to the father and had the most difficult conversation he'd ever had. It was one both men would never forget. Ask a paramedic, nurse, or doctor about their experiences with the death of a child, and you will see a clear and unmistakable change in comfort level and body language. Nobody wants to think about it, let alone talk about it. And by distancing themselves from the emotions, they hope to be protected from the emotional trauma, even though the before, during, and after phases of the event provide ample time for healthcare professionals to reach out and help bring the family closer. The choice is counterintuitive for most. A newly published qualitative study in pediatric critical care medicine sheds an important light on this complex topic and brings great clarity to what parents truly need when their child is dying. While the study related to children who died in a pediatric intensive care unit, the results are applicable across the healthcare continuum and inclusive of all specialties that care for children, including EMS. The paper describes three key time periods related to pediatric death. Using direct interview questions, it elicits what parents want during this difficult process. We'll review the hospital side and then discuss how the EMS profession can learn from this important study. First, during hospitalization. In the study, parents emphasized the need for honesty and wanted to be clearly and directly told their child's chance for survival was limited, as early as possible, and with little ambiguity. Interestingly, they asked that information relayed by the medical team be written down, drawn out as diagrams, and repeated multiple times. Parents also expressed the need for a respite room, one that included snacks, toiletries, facilities for showering or washing clothes, and phone charging access. The provision of meals, overnight accommodations, and improvements to access and cost of parking were mentioned as well. They felt access to the PICU was difficult, and that during such a difficult time, larger rooms with more natural light were important. 
In retrospect, they felt early referral to community-based support services, such as counselors and pastors, etc., would have great value, as well as improved support and resources for the sick child's siblings. Next, during the dying phase. Parents prefer to be in a private room with natural light, large enough for other family members to visit, and demedicalized as much as possible. They also strongly recommended staff members stay with them after their child died. Some small but important examples were that someone stayed to help wash their child, pack their belongings, and even walk them out to their cars. And on that final exit out of the hospital, going home forever without their child, to please waive the parking fee. Then they emphasized something most of us in healthcare never think about. How do I visit my child in the morgue? When they finally figure that out, there needs to be a designated visiting room so parents can spend alone time with their deceased child. Third, during bereavement. Families that have been through a tragedy like this will tell you that what happens after they leave the hospital is incredibly difficult. The feelings of denial and anger collide with the feelings of being alone with a silence more painful with each passing day. Every parent interviewed for this study strongly recommended routine follow-up care be offered. Parents wanted more information on what happens next, things like what to do when they get home, how to plan for a funeral, and will there be a post-mortem examination? How are they supposed to feel? Are there normal grief symptoms? The parents interviewed wanted to attend counseling or support groups and therefore needed a list of local bereavement services as they departed or on the follow-up phone call. Parents were adamant that follow-up began a few days after their child's death and taper off after a year. A phone call from someone who treated their child could give them comfort that their child had the best care possible and everything was done when it mattered most. They felt letters, or better yet, in-person meetings with those who cared for their child would be helpful in the healing process. Another request that came up repeatedly was staff presence at funerals. This goes from EMS all the way through the hospital staff, and they stress the importance of including the entire family in follow-up, including siblings and close relatives. Another request was to be connected to parents of other families whose children had died. This could be accomplished via a hospital-based bereavement support or parent-buddy system model. Translating it to EMS. In EMS, we encounter children during the dying phase, which puts us at a disadvantage. We must handle both the medical and familial aspects simultaneously. The opening example was difficult, but managed extremely well by a seasoned EMS captain. Take another example, pediatric drowning, during which the family is frantic, having suddenly been thrust into trying to revive their child, who was perfectly normal minutes earlier. When EMS arrives, not only do families expect the highest quality of care, but they also need the connection and the embrace as their world goes into a tailspin. So whose responsibility is this? Some may naively say, well, I'm here to perform the correct medical procedures and transport the child to the hospital. But this isn't enough. The interviews from the study were clear. Parents want a clear and direct explanation of what we are doing and why. Resist the instinct to push the parent away or remove them from the scene when their ingrained parental response is to protect their child. Understand they have lost all control and their feeling of guilt is overwhelming. Avoiding or not acknowledging them may be easier at that time, but it's considerably off the mark. Just like the EMS captain did on scene, at least one member of the team 
should make contact with the parent immediately upon arrival to provide a rapid and clear explanation of the situation. Based on the situation, tell parents the truth. Say something like, your child is in cardiac arrest and we're doing everything we can to get him or her back to life before we start moving toward the hospital. It's important to emphasize that we are doing exactly what the doctors would do at the hospital and we just need a few minutes to try to get your child's heart beating again so we can give him or her the best chance at survival. Acknowledging the parent's emotional distress is perfectly acceptable. The person connecting with the family can say, I know this is very stressful for you and you may be wondering why we aren't rushing to the hospital. Something like that gives the parent confidence that you recognize their concerns. It also acknowledges the elephant in the room, which for decades has resulted in children being scooped up and rushed to the hospital, often without critical life-saving interventions. In the non-arrest situation, such as a seizure or altered mental status, it is helpful to point out the positive findings in simple terms. Here are some examples. Come and hold your child's hand and feel that it's warm. That means he's getting good blood flow. Notice how good the color is in his face. That's a good thing. Come and look at the monitor. Notice how good her oxygen level is. The heart rate is normal and her blood pressure is doing fine right now. Or, I want you to stay close by me if you have any questions. We are going to do a few more things right here before we go. I'll keep you updated. These statements can be followed up with statements like these. She isn't breathing so well on her own, so we will be assisting with that. It appears he's in pain so we'll be giving some medications to make him feel better. Finally, it's important to give some sense of control back to the parent. This can be done with a very simple question. Is that okay? When you tell a parent what you're doing, follow it up with, is that okay? This will create a bond between you and the parent that's invaluable. It'll allow you to continue to provide the best care to their child while at the same time keeping your workspace unagitated by emotion. By bringing the family closer, you'll have given them back some sense of control. And if they say no, you'll have to shift gears to better understand the source of their fear. Here are some examples. Your child appears to be dehydrated and we'd like to place an IV in his arm. Is that okay? Johnny seems to be in a lot of pain and I'd like to give him an appropriate dose of pain control using a nasal spray. Is that okay? Or your child may have ingested a battery and it's important that he get an x-ray. So I'd like to transport him to the children's hospital. Is that okay? In route to the hospital, if the family member is in the ambulance, give them ample warning that it'll appear very hectic at the emergency department, but you'll find them to check in before you leave. Then don't forget to do exactly that. This is what we teach as the first step to getting to closure. It's okay to approach the parent after you've transferred care to the emergency department staff and let them know the doctors and nurses are doing everything they can for their child. It's also okay to reiterate what you and your team did during the pre-hospital phase as it reinforces that you indeed did everything possible to save their child's life. If you feel it's okay, use a personal touch. Hold a hand, give them a hug, to convey that you're caring. Most parents need that embrace. EMS and the bereavement phase. Does EMS have a responsibility after the death of a child, or should we assume that the hospital will handle it? The study discussed in this article describes clearly that parents need and want follow-up. EMS should absolutely be part of that equation. Every agency should create a process in which someone, preferably someone with experience, calls the family to offer condolences and bereavement support. It also sends a powerful message when an EMS representative attends the funeral. It tells everyone in attendance that this is a group of people who truly care 
and they are not hiding from anything. If this feels counterintuitive, that's okay. The findings presented above are counterintuitive too. Bereavement is not straightforward, and it requires a deep understanding of what parents are going through during the most difficult time. The Palm Beach Experience Over the past few years, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue has trained on both the medical and emotional aspects of pediatric care in the field, with an additional focus on bereavement in the days and months following a death. Training on high-performing CPR goes hand-in-hand with training on how to speak to family members upon arrival, on the scene, en route to the hospital, and prior to departure. A social work team is also immediately notified of the incident and responsible for contacting the family to assist with bereavement. We have also instituted a call with medical direction to review the medical aspects of the call and discuss who engaged the family and how that went. Through this process, we have recognized the power of getting to closure by having difficult conversations. These lessons have been invaluable on many levels. Parents have been grateful for the calls they've received from the Palm Beach County Fire Rescue Team and reported a sense of strong embrace when we attended their child's funeral. This more holistic approach has made a big impact in the lives of many on both sides of the equation. No one except those who have suffered the death of a child can ever understand the difficulty and horror of that experience. However, if we do the right thing, coming closer instead of running away, we will soften the blow and perhaps even save another life. This is exactly what that EMS captain did by walking toward the distraught father when he could have easily just advised transport and avoided the difficult interaction. We can all learn from stories and research papers like this. Let's embrace others when they need us most, and perhaps one small gesture can change someone's life forever. Thank you for listening, and I hope you stay tuned, as now I'll be talking to EMS Captain Adrian Castro, who was the EMS Captain in the story, followed by Attorney Jason Turchin for his thoughts on speaking to families before, during, and after a difficult call. Now we are joined by EMS Captain Adrian Castro. Adrian, thanks for coming on and uh, agreeing to being interviewed. Thank you, Dr. Antevi. It's a pleasure. So I've had the pleasure of knowing Adrian for the past uh, five years as the medical director of Palm Beach County Fire. But uh, Adrian, I know you've been with the department for 26 years in total. I've learned a lot from you and you just have such a great way of just handling your job, your work life, your home life. You just, you're just really a great mentor to a lot of people. What I'm curious is from the time you started uh, at Palm Beach County Fire Rescue until now, how have you changed or what are the things that you've seen your progression to becoming the person that you are today? That's a, that's a great question. It's very complex. Um, as you all know. Unfortunately, in those 26 years of my career, I have dealt with a lot of tragedies. And many of those years, I also worked on an aeromedical helicopter. And and most of those incidences involved trauma. Many of those, of course, revolved around around children and the impacts that, uh, that those incidences have on families. So the experience and the exposure of the multitude and the complexity of many of those calls has allowed me to look at other sources and other ways uh, of learning the processes that parents 
experience when they when they lose a child. In addition to obviously uh, my skills and my application of my knowledge and, and the tools that I have to to do my profession. So it's uh, I'm constantly trying to learn on how to deal with the parents. Uh, now that I'm uh, older, of course, I, I have children of my own. It's a different seat when you're when you're caring for for a child versus being a parent. Having that composure to deal with the parent. It's extraordinary, and it's a skill that has to be acquired. And I think through these 26 years, I continue to evolve, and I continue to acquire those skills. Right. And let me ask you a question, because I would say that a majority of healthcare professionals today, even after a long career, they try to separate the medical aspects from the personal and interpersonal aspects. My question for you is, how are you able now to be on a scene like the one that was described in the article, see something devastating happen to a family and be able to both do the medical side of it and then turn and look at the parents and then help them get through what they're getting through. Because I think a lot of people try not to blend those two things, but what I've learned from you and in, from even my own career, I realize how important the blend is. It all starts uh, back in 1997 when I completed nursing school. Through the process of, uh, of, of learning to be a registered nurse, I learned a lot about compassion. And that compassion, I don't know if it's inherent, something that I, I've possessed personally, or something that I've learned through the nursing process. But I think that many of us in this particular field separate the two. I have learned that when you incorporate compassion with application of the skills that you've learned, it works both ways in reference to the treatment, uh, not only of those that are injured or, or, or the child, but also in the treatment of, of the coping of the parents. Because the parents of a child that has died uh, truly don't believe it's, it's, uh, it's true. They believe it's a dream. They believe it's a nightmare. Um, and that's a normal process for, for parents. When you see parents who are at the scene, for example, this child who was unfortunately run over by, by, by the parent, and you see the family member on the scene, you know, it appears that you've been doing this for, for most of your career. When other people see you do it, I think it, it almost inherently feels counterintuitive to them. But what do you think that that process, how do you think that process should look from starting onto the scene? and then going into the emergency department, how much do you think that that connection has to happen as far as, does it have to be a long conversation? Kind of, let's get into your, maybe the word technique is not, but how would you educate others to do it on scene so that they can have that touch point in the field and then potentially in the emergency department as well? One of the things that we have to understand as healthcare professionals is that parents always want to be in control. Once parents feel that they're not in control, they feel separated. We, as healthcare professionals, have to be sensitive to the fact that the process that they feel is completely natural. And it's basically a mechanism of protecting themselves. The opportunity to speak with them, speaking the truth with them, incorporating them possibly in the process of, of what you're doing as a uh, EMS supervisor. I, I'm no longer involved necessarily in the treatment aspect and I can use 
the skills that, that we've talked about in uh, speaking with the parents, explaining the process of, of what our healthcare professionals are providing, whether it be the medics on scene or the, or the uh, hospital staff at the hospital, and just keeping them engaged. I, I think that keeping them engaged is, is very important. If it's okay with you, let's go to the scene of this uh, of this uh, child that had that unfortunate event. It seemed I remember talking to you after the uh, the incident. It felt to me that you were at peace, and at the same time, there were other members of our of our department who weren't at peace. Even though you were the one who did the hard had the hard conversation, what would you advise other medics out there who feel that that conversation is just too tough for me to have? Let's say I'm a 23 year old. Uh, guy or gal out there, and they just feel like maybe you know I'm not old enough. I don't have kids yet. I don't have the experience that uh, that you have. What would you advise them as far as that journey to a successful career to get to this point? I think at the end of the day, parents want to hear the truth, and I think that we're apprehensive as healthcare professionals because many of us don't feel that we should tell them the truth. Uh, I'm not certain if that's something that has been given to us in different literature or different learning habits that we've we've acquired but i think that if we apply a humanistic approach with that parent of course on a very unfortunate traumatic incident i think it'll set the parents at ease then if we give them false hope i think only experience through the uh, processes of being involved in these types of incidences and allowing yourself to approach these parents as humans and telling them the truth, I think uh, I think it, it will help a lot. So that's that's fascinating to hear you say that because I will tell you, and I wonder if you agree with this, that most people want to come to the scene and scoop and run and take that kid because they want to signal to the family in their minds, we're signaling to the family that we're quote unquote doing something. In this particular incident that you discuss in the article, we had multiple crew members on scene at the time that I arrived. The child had uh, received traumatic injuries that were not sustainable to life. It was my decision to make um, in less than 15 to 30 seconds of what we shall do. And I chose to leave the child at the scene. I don't feel that we should expose ourselves to enable families to acquire a sense of hope when the function of what we're going to provide for that child is going to be futile. I think that many of us in this particular profession do not like to deal with speaking with parents. It could be out of comfort. It could be out of past experiences or it could be out of lack of knowledge. Being exposed to many of these incidences, I, I, I believe that I've acquired a little bit a sense of responsibility to the parents and responsibility to the crew members to not expose them. You know, many of these incidents require the transportation of lights and sirens and possibly air transport, exposing members to things that uh, unsafe acts that, that don't have to exist. I think a lot of us are afraid to make that decision, and it could be due to not being comfortable with speaking with the parents on scene, or it could be not being comfortable 
with their own self with making that decision. In closing, you know, Adrian, I think that people could hear in your voice how thoughtful you are. They can hear that you're very experienced in, in what you do. And I wanted to thank you personally. What, what's interesting, and you know, I'm a very big, big believer in uh, that things happen for a reason. But when I wrote this article and I submitted it to EMS World, I called up the department and I said, hey, can you send just a, a whole file full of pictures so they can use it in the magazine? Lo and behold, when they sent the, the draft of the article, uh, there you are on the front cover. So I hadn't spoken to you about this article uh, until after the draft came out. And so what I would hope is that people hear your story and they see that there is an individual who's actually looking out for others on scenes like this. We, we should all learn from what you've done. And I can tell you that I'm really happy to call you a colleague. Working you know, side by side with you has really taught me a lot as a person as well. So Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge today. And I hope that you uh, can share your knowledge with others in the future. Thank you, Dr. Intevi. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Adrian, thank you so much for that. That was very powerful and we really appreciate your insight. Now, next, I have the very big privilege of bringing in a very dear friend of mine, Jason Turchin. Jason's a victim's rights and accident attorney in Florida. And not only did our kids go to school together, but Jason allowed us to utilize some of his office space when we needed it years ago. And interestingly, what I learned from Jason over the years, as I saw all these people coming in and out of his office who were upset about the care that they received, I started to learn that there was a pattern that I wanted to provide the EMS audience a chance to learn about this pattern of what patients were saying to Jason after they suffered some harm, whether it was right or not. And so Jason, thank you so much for coming on today and helping to educate all the EMS professionals out there in the country. Thanks for having me today. Appreciate it. And so you've told me throughout the years, so many of these stories, I was hoping that you can give some guidance and some words of knowledge of what you've learned over the decades of practice that you've had as an attorney. Thanks. And I've handled more than 6,500 accident and injury cases uh, all across the spectrum of catastrophic types of cases that, that we read about pretty much every day. Most of the time when clients first call us, uh, it, it's often because they want answers. They're trying to really figure out what happened, why it happened, how it happened. Uh, those are the sorts of questions that we typically get in the beginning. Not so much, I want to make a claim. Uh, it's more about the family trying to figure out what really went on, what happened. Interesting. When we have these cases in EMS, and now you know Adrian's story that I wrote about in this month's edition of EMS World, it seems to me to be the instinct of the healthcare professional, and I'm, I'm putting myself as a pediatric ER doctor for many years and now EMS medical director in that position, but people seem to just want to run away from that aspect of interacting with the family when something goes wrong. What are your thoughts about that? I think the priority certainly should be on the child or the, the patient without question. Uh, but the family plays a big role in the outcomes. Now, I understand at the scene there's a lot going on, but the family member, they want to know, they, they often think, why isn't my child going to the hospital? Why are they working on them at the scene? Uh, why didn't they just kind of scoop them up and bring them to the hospital to get the emergency care and may not really have the, the knowledge of what really happens with, with EMS at the scene? 
And so for them, they're watching their loved one being worked on with no answers. Uh, prior to EMS getting called, there was probably some real trauma that happened before the fact. You know, the family may have been trying to figure out if their child's having an allergic reaction or if they're choking or what, what's, what's happening with them, or there may have just been a bad uh, a car accident. And the family has already gone through trauma. And then at the scene, they're then being pushed away, which to them, you know, they feel helpless. And, uh, and it's scary for them too, because they just don't know what's happening and have really no answers, which, you know, from our perspective, we understand that, that EMS has to do their job and their priority is saving the, saving the patient. But there's also the family that's being pushed to the side who may feel guilt. Maybe they had something to do with it or may have contributed, uh, or maybe they just witnessed their loved one getting struck by a car or, or some other traumatic event or drowning or being pulled from a pool. And, and so they're a victim in, uh, in and of itself, too, that they're kind of being pushed to the side at that moment of uh, crisis. So would you advise that when we're on the scene and there's just a distraught family member who is, as you say, who may feel very guilty with what had just happened, would you advise us in EMS to interface with them, even if only briefly at the scene? Absolutely. I think just making that connection with the family member, even if it's something as simple as we understand the urgency of this, we need to try to get your, your loved one as stable as possible here. Or there are some critical things that we need to do here on scene before we transport to give your loved one the best chance of recovery or survival. How would you recommend then that the follow-up happen at the hospital? We often have people on the scene who are treating a child. Perhaps an officer comes onto the scene to interface with that family member if possible. And then our second interaction with them is going to be oftentimes in the emergency department. And what we tend to do in EMS, which is what we're trying to change here, obviously, is we tend to leave the emergency department again without making the contact. In your opinion, what does that secondary contact do for the emotional state of the family member, not just then, but even into the future as they're thinking of what happened? They want to know what happened. They want to get some degree of closure. And I think having that customer service type approach, even if it's a simple here's what we did. We're now going to pass you off into the emergency personnel hands. They're going to be the best people for you at this moment may help to, at least in the family's mind, give them that closure that the last step is finished. We're now moving on to the, to the next phase of the emergency care. Right. And you bring up a great point because I have the feeling that most people think when they approach a family member in the field, or in an emergency department, that their role is to be someone who's going to have all the expertise of a bereavement specialist and so forth. But in reality, what you're saying is, is that the family, in essence, wants to know what was done so that they can have at least a feeling when they leave, if their child does unfortunately pass away, that all the things were done correctly, right? The person had the decency to come look me in the eyes and at least say, hey, I'm thinking about you without having to go into the whole bereavement aspects of it. Is that correct? I think so. I, I don't think you have to counsel them like a professional counselor would with decades of training. It's oftentimes, I think, having that, that personal connection, I would think it would go quite a long way. You know, I'm not a counselor either, but yet we, we deal with clients who have gone through trauma on a daily basis. 
And one of the first things that I tell clients when I when they come to my office, regardless of the type of claim that they might have, is I'm going to try to get you answers. Yeah. Have you ever had a case where an EMS professional did speak to the family on scene, even apologize where appropriate? Have you ever seen that come back in a negative way towards the healthcare professional? I haven't. And uh, it, and it's quite honestly not something that happens very often. Uh, I don't hear very often clients coming to me and saying that the doctor called me afterwards to tell me he was sorry or she was sorry, or uh, or EMS followed up with me afterwards just to see how I was doing. Uh, it's it's not something that I've heard quite often and maybe maybe one or two times, quite honestly, in, in 6,500 some odd cases, um, it's just not something that happens very often. So if there are EMS leaders out there, and I know many who listen to these podcasts from EMS World, what would you tell them as they're managing a department of hundreds, even thousands of medics, many of whom are younger, now the millennial medics and so forth, who are more used to maybe accustomed to cell phone technology? What would you say with respect to how to train people when they're in a situation that's difficult, for example, the death of a child, I think just a just a touch, just a just a personal contact, I think would go a long way uh, in in helping the families through this situation that they're in. You know, I, I think in this in this day and age where we're so disconnected from people, you know, we're we're dealing, we're trying to be as disconnected as possible sometimes with social media, with texting people that that we're losing that face-to-face contact. And for a lot of these victims who are going through a tremendous trauma that comes out of nowhere most often, they're going about their normal lives, and then in an instant, things have changed. Having at least some, some contact with the family, either during the incident or certainly the follow-up, once things calm down, uh, even if it's just the pass-off at the hospital, that... Uh, that it's done in a way that at least the family feels like everybody's done everything that they possibly could and, and have that confidence that they're in the best hands possible. So that's wonderfully said. You know, you're so eloquent, and I really think that'll go a long way to that touch point. If we call touch point one on the scene, touch point two in the emergency department, I'm really wondering what your thoughts are on the follow-up in the bereavement phase. The family's now at home the funeral hasn't happened yet. What are your thoughts about a phone call 24 or 48 hours later? And then to even unpack that further, what are your thoughts about one of the members of the EMS agency coming to the funeral? What are your thoughts about those two items? It would all, in my, in my opinion, have to go hand in hand. It would raise more flags, I think, if there had been no prior touches at your touch point one and two, and then EMS suddenly shows up at the, at the funeral. Now, that's not to say that that it wouldn't be accepted because it very well may be. I think having a contact in that touch point three at any point afterwards in the bereavement time or any point thereafter, I think would be really important for the family. But these little personal touches, I think, are going to go so far with with healing, with trust in the community, with with giving the the victims and their families, uh, giving the families the confidence that. Uh, that everybody did everything that they could to come together to try to save their loved one. Uh, and I, I absolutely think the, the post-hospital uh, is very important, even if it's just a, even if it's a card, even if it's a follow-up phone call. Uh, there had been maybe more contact 
with the families, maybe showing up at the funeral would be appropriate. Uh, just letting them know that, you know, as a community, we all tried to work together to save your love, to save your loved one. And we all did the best that we could. I think that would be tremendous and have a, a huge impact on, uh, on the community for sure. And the families. In the study that we wrote about families even said, you know, how about sending us a card on what would have been his birthday. Right. And I think that these are things that just, they don't cost any money. And there are really human, personal items that we can do, like you said, bringing the community together. You also brought up a great point, which is that if someone spoke to the family on scene and then in the emergency department, the next step should be a phone call to check in and then to get acceptance to come to the funeral. Is that okay if, as an example, if we attend the funeral, if contact is made by phone first, that's the time to ask if someone from EMS could attend the funeral. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that would be a wonderful idea to, to if you've had that contact with the family, uh, we're so sorry about what, you've, uh, what you're going through. Uh, is it okay if somebody from, uh, from our office comes to the funeral? Right, right. And I think these are all very important items. Uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for, for taking us through them. And, you know, I really appreciate that. And I've learned today from our short conversation that in your profession, you know, you also take the role of a healer. You're trying to heal these people's open wounds. And what they're trying to figure out is exactly what happened. And isn't it interesting that we have the information on the medical side? We know what happened. It's just that it's not being communicated so well. So it's, you know, it's really fascinating to understand that in your career, and you're such a humble person and a great communicator, and I think your success has come because you're actually healing others. And so that's something that's really come out loud and clear today. And I'm really happy to call you a friend. And for anyone listening who wants to reach out to you, your website is victimaid.com. And I know you've helped thousands and thousands of people in your career. And again, Jason... Thank you for that, and thank you for your friendship. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this article and hundreds more like it at emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020, at EMS World Expo.